0: Kid appropriate Sunday school worship time. I'm six years old now. You're six years old now. Mm-hmm. Did you have a birthday? I know. Was it a fun birthday? Yeah. yeah. I'm five. You're five. All right. Let me pray for you all. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these children. I thank you that they are growing and learning. We praise you because you have given them to us for the care, for their care. And you are at work even now in their hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed improve upon their baptism as you draw them to yourself. We desire for them to know you and serve you, to have salvation because they have faith in you. We ask that even at this young age, you would be doing that work and drawing them to yourself so that they would know the truth of the gospel. And as they go off, Lord, we ask that they would hear and learn and grow in their Sunday school time. We ask, Lord, that you'd also bless the teachers with wisdom to communicate the hope of the gospel to our little ones. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. See y'all later. For those who are note-takers and astute, you'll notice that the symbols of the season, the meaning of the Christmas star is the title of the sermon, and that's a typo on my part. I think I sent Judith the sermon series a little bit in the wrong order. We get to talk about Santa Claus today. So for those who are note takers or are particular about your bulletin, it should be symbols of the season, the meaning of Santa Claus. I know it's interesting, isn't it? Talking about Santa church. When I was in high school, I had a friend. I'll call him Jim. Jim was a tough guy. Jim was on the wrestling team with me, and he was pretty good technically, but one of the reasons he was a successful wrestler is he was just tough as nails. And to be honest, you didn't want to make him angry. It wasn't going to go well. And within the high school world that I'm sure many of us experienced some measure of, the tough guys sometimes liked to get into fights and things like that. And my friend Jim was no exception. And if he got in a fight, he usually won. And It was not uncommon for more than one person to try to get into the mix. And my friend Jim just kind of seemed to take a punch and then return a few more. And when I say that he was tough, I'm not exaggerating. You see, he actually, after high school, ended up getting involved in mixed martial arts, uh, cage fighting, and had a decent career. He made a lot of money. He fought in uh, various casinos and places where they would have these events. But if I were to tell you some of the stories about him that were circulating about his toughness that were not true, you would all laugh at me because you would know they're not true. No, he did not get have 10 people attack him with baseball bats and go beat them all up, right? My friend Jim was tough. He won fights. In fact, he made a career being tough. But you know what? He did not take on hordes and hordes of people. He did not beat up an entire fraternity these stories that started to circulate about him were simply not true. But they were based in the reality that he was tough. They were based in the reality that he was actually a really loyal friend and that if somebody attacked me because I was his friend, they were probably going to be in trouble. I never had uh, that issue. But that was the reality of who my friend Jim was. And so the stories that spread about him were a combination of kind of awe because he was really tough I think my ear is just the wrong shape. Uh, Because he was really tough, but also kind of this collegial, we just respect him because we knew that he had our back and we appreciated him. Well, as we consider Santa Claus, let me tell you that there really was a man named St. Nicholas. He was a real historical figure. And so as we wonder about this guy who comes down our chimney and gives Christmas presents to good boys and girls, Let me tell you, there is some history that we should learn as we seek to assess the symbol of Santa Claus because as we all know, Santa Claus is not just a gift giver, he represents something about the season of Christmas, doesn't he? There's something about Santa Claus that whether you believe in him or not, whether you think it's cool or uncool or whatever else, when you see Santa Claus, there's a bit of hope that wells up in your heart. There's a, a bit of joy that wells up in your heart, and there's a sense of generosity that will flow. And so, as we think about St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, I want to encourage you to one, there's, there's a route to the historical reality of Santa Claus that we should appreciate. And so, we're going to do that. We're going to remember that Santa Claus is indeed a symbol. A symbol is a visible sign of something invisible. Um, We've actually said last week that it's an act, sound, or object having cultural significance and the capacity to excite or objectify a response. And this is where we really want to root our understanding of symbols, right, is it it actually causes us to respond. And so for you, what does, when we talk about Santa Claus, what does that well up inside of you? And then there's a third definition that I'm going to add, a third element to symbols, It's an authoritative summary of faith or doctrine. The idea of a creed, it's a condensed way of expressing complex ideas. And I'm going to make the argument today that Santa Claus is actually, in a lot of ways, a condensed way of expressing complex ideas and concepts. Something like a lion representing courage, that's a loaded concept, right? Santa Claus represents generosity and truth. We will be looking at that. If you have your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 11 through 14 as our jumping off point. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. It is true, and it is given in love. Let me pray for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I received this in the mail. It's very old. Well, not very old. Some of you would take offense to that comment. This is a newspaper clipping. And in the newspaper clipping is a picture of our church. And this is the first bulletin from our church. This was actually sent by family members of a church member who was cleaning out their house kind of in late stages of life. And this this newspaper clipping is about the beginning of our church and the laying of the cornerstone of faith Presbyterian church it's really cool why is that significant well it marks a historic event and it set the stage for a lot of history for some of us this is our home church we've grown up here this is the church we've known our whole lives for some of us we moved into town and this is the church where we ended up attending Hopefully because there's some aspect in which we heard the gospel richly and truly and it affected our hearts and we felt the fellowship of the saints, we felt loved and cared for, right? But that groundbreaking many years ago, in, you know, pictured in faded, yellowed newspaper clippings, is a historic reality. It's, it marks as a symbol. The cornerstone of the church marks as a symbol all the good things God is going to do through this church over the years. I'm not trying to pretend that this church is perfect. Right? That's not the point. The point is that that cornerstone, that historic event, it's it's a landmark, it's a moment in history that we can look to and say, wow, all of this history has flowed from there. Much the same way, Santa Claus has that kind of a history. You see, St. Nicholas was a person, he was born estimated about the year 280 AD, and he was a priest who was known for his generosity. He was known as being an incredibly pious person. And there's the story, the foundational story of St. Nicholas that has traveled throughout the ages, is that as a generous man, he came across a poor man who had three daughters. And at this point in history, it was common for people to have to pay a dowry when they got married. Women would have to pay a certain amount of money in order to get married. Now, for, some, for, for our sensibilities today, that would be something that we would typically think of as wicked Uh, but that was what happened in history in many cultures and so saint nicholas had recognized that this poor man could not afford the dowry for his daughters to be married and if the daughters couldn't be married then they would certainly fall into poverty and suffer horribly and so one night he dropped a bag of gold down the chimney to pay the dowry for the first daughter well as legends go you know where that gold landed right They had put up stockings to dry by the fire, and of course that gold fell right into the stocking. That's the way legends go. And St. Nicholas, being incredibly generous and wanting to care for this man, did this the next year for the second daughter. But the third year, as the story goes, the man wanted to know who this mysterious gift giver was, and so he hid by the fire, and when the gold came down, he ran out and caught Saint Nicholas, and Saint Nicholas begged him, please don't tell anybody, I want this to be anonymous, I want to be generous without personal benefit and all of the good things that you might expect a saint to say, but eventually word spread, and Saint Nicholas, Saint Nick, became the one who people began to assume was responsible for all of the anonymous gifts that were given. See, generosity is a good thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. And so as we think as a starting point about who Santa is, what Santa means for us, Santa in many ways is a symbol that reminds us to be the best of who we can be. Santa reminds us that there is an equality, a need for people, no matter where they're from, no matter what their background is, to receive generosity. Santa Claus gives to children all around the world, right? And he does it all in one night. It's pretty amazing. But that is something that should be written on our hearts. As people made in the image of God, we have the law of God written in our hearts. Roman 1 tells us that we know it. We know that we're supposed to value those around us. We know that we're supposed to act charitably. We know it. But because of the effects of sin in our hearts, we rebel against that very law that is written on our hearts. And so Santa is a symbol of generosity, but also... It's a bit of a convicting symbol, isn't he? If, if we're supposed to be kind of by nature like Santa, we actually recognize that we simply are not. We tend to hoard our wealth, whether it's our gifts, our talents, our resources, our money. It's our inclination. It's our first inclination to protect ourselves. And so let me encourage you, as we think about Santa, it's a good challenge to us Instead of casting it off as some cultural thing or casting Santo away for whatever reason you might, be challenged by the symbol that exists, that Santa Claus does give generously. Saint Nicholas was not interested in his personal fame. Saint Nicholas was not interested in growing through the ranks within the ecclesiastical structures. He was known as Humble. He was known as somebody who loved the Lord, and his love for the Lord caused an outflow of generosity, even to him living in poverty, though he had people who supported him, as was common in that point in history. So how did we get from St. Nicholas, the symbol of generosity from the third century, to our moment today? Well, Washington Irving in 1809, because St. Nicholas had been sainted, he was known within the Catholic church as a saint. In 1809 Washington Irving wrote a book called The History of New York, and he names him the patron saint of New York. So, you now have Saint Nicholas being the patron saint of children, that shouldn't surprise us, that's the history, but also the saint of sailors because he was supposedly by according to the history even demonstrated some miraculous power over storms for the safety of sailors. And now in 1809, suddenly he gets connected to America in particular as the saint of New York. And then in 1890, this will be familiar for many of us, the Salvation Army began using Santa Claus to raise money for needy families. How did they do that? And this is a beautiful thing. They found people who were, uh, they found unemployed men, men who were in, in dire need and employed them. Brothers and sisters, that is a wonderful way to be Santa Claus in this world, to use your, your position for the benefit of others. If you own a business, to hire people and pay them appropriate wages, to care for them in the, this way. And so Salvation Army intentionally hired unemployed men who were a bit destitute and had them dressed as Santa Claus to raise money so that they could provide meals to needy families that has continued on to today to be the bell ringers you see around us. And we could get into all kinds of debates about the history and teachings of the Salvation Army. That's, that's not what we're interested in right now. What I want us to see is that Santa Claus, as a symbol of generosity, has affected our society in really a beautiful way. It is, it is, as a symbol, it reminds us of what we ought to be and has caused generosity to flow. People have been fed. People have been employed. And we should praise the Lord for that beautiful history. So then the question becomes, what's so bad about Santa? Why is there this war about Santa that tends to exist in the church? Well, several years ago, uh, a a small town decided that they were having, or recognized that they were having a problem with pickpockets during things like Christmas parades. And so they put up signs that said, as a warning, be cautious, warning, there are pickpockets around here. And so, what do you think that had a good benefit? Did you it had a good reaction? It seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Let people know, tourists coming to your town, that there's pickpockets around. But what would immediately happen is people would, they would check their wallet. Now, if you're a pickpocket, what did that just do for you? It made your life a lot easier. You don't have to guess. You don't have to do the work. You know exactly where that wallet is. And so this sign that was put up to warn tourists that pickpockets were at work and make things better for tourists ended up backfiring. So sometimes the best of ideas backfire, don't they? And sometimes the way we deal with Santa Claus can backfire as well. So let's start with what I would say is the most common critique of Santa Claus is that various cultures have similar stories, that Santa Claus isn't a Christian thing at all, and that it's another pagan thing that we've brought in to our Christmas worship. And again, we need to be honest. There is some truth to this statement. Santa Claus is absolutely an archetype. An archetype is a recurrent symbol that's in literature, art, or mythology. It's an emotion character type or event that is notably recurrent across human experience. And so we shouldn't be surprised that some sort of generous gift giver exists in many cultures around the world because it's written on our hearts. It is written on the human heart that we are to be kind. We are to be generous. And yes, we know we fail in this, but it's written on our hearts as image bearers of God. And so uh, my pronunciation on these, because they're all foreign languages, is gonna be atrocious. Please don't judge me. Christ's kind or Kris Kringle, is Swiss and German, which is actually meaning the Christ child. And in their picture of who Santa Claus is, is an angel-like figure historically that accompanied St. Nicholas on his holiday missions. The English legend explains the the gift-giving through Father Christmas, which is a lot like Santa Claus, St. Nicholas tends to fill children's stockings with treats instead of gifts, a little more food-oriented. Uh, this is where it's going to get really bad on pronunciation. Pere Noel is responsible for, for... French is just a language you should never try to use in the pulpit. Um, is responsible for filling the shoes of French children. You see some commonalities, but it's a little bit different. My favorite of, the, uh, of these is actually the Italian woman... La Befana, who is actually a kindly witch who rides a broomstick down chimneys and does the work of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, Father Christmas. Why do all these cu- cultures have this belief? Some would argue because it's all made up. I would argue it's because generosity is written on our heart. But part of the problem then really does come to the fact that the surface when we say, are we just appropriating cultural ideas into our Christian worldview? And I would agree that we should be very cautious about that, right? Just like we said with the Christmas tree, there is historical value. There are real things about the symbol of the Christmas tree that we should, have, that we should value as Christians. Generosity should be valued about Santa Claus. But maybe witches flying a broomstick down chimneys falls outside of the pale of Christian faith. But let's get a little deeper in, because it's not just about the historical or, or worldwide use of Santa Claus and the idea of the generous gift giver. You see, the, he's making a list idea of Santa Claus. We sing that song, don't we? We know it. He's making a list. He's checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. That comes from 1822 a poem by Clement Clark. The original title is an account of a visit from St. Nicholas. It's better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. And then it didn't take long for Santa Claus as as the Dutch came to the United States, as they immigrated, and and they were the ones who kind of had an affection for St. Nicholas, and we'll get to why that might be the case in a little bit. Uh, But as the Dutch came to the United States and they brought uh, the idea of St. Nicholas with them. There was kind of a resurgence around that same time in the United States, and it became a bit of a marketing ploy. You, you started to see things like St. Nicholas being dressed and put in storefronts, as, and then the, eventually, instead of mannequins, you had the live Santa event, and suddenly you had the commercialization of Santa Claus. Santa Claus being part of parades, uh, but more than that, really... Christmas sales and everything else. It goes back to the 1890s that we see advertising using Santa Claus. And with that comes a bit of pressure to make sure your children receive all the gifts that they so much deserve. So marketing ploys, what's so bad about that? Well, Christmas isn't about marketing. Christmas isn't about getting stuff and it's not about giving stuff. Christmas is about the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And so when we see Santa Claus get wrapped up in the marketing ploys and we want to have Elf on the Shelf and Santa Claus and all the decorations, we easily lose sight of the fact that our Savior was born humbly. And instead of thinking about our Savior, we think about a jolly man in a red suit. And that is a problem. (laughs) While, while we can and should be okay with some cultural celebration, I wonder for how many of us Jesus Christ himself is the center of Christmas as opposed to maybe making sure we get all of our shopping done. So there's our challenge as a starting point, right? Santa Claus has, in a sense, taken the spotlight, and that's a problem. But I'm going to say, I'm going to even argue that it gets deeper than that. It's not just that there's some kind of competition for our affection. The gospel of Santa Claus is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we see in St. Nicholas in our history is not what we see marketed with Santa Claus. Does Jesus forgive us because we're good? Is Jesus keeping a list? I have a friend who describes what he perceives as the common view of Christianity as the whack-a-mole God. Have you ever seen the whack-a-mole game in an arcade? The little hedgehogs or whatever, the moles pop up and you've got the padded thing you've got to thump them with? The image is as if God is just waiting for you to mess up so that he can smack you down. That's actually kind of the picture you get with Santa Claus. He's just waiting for you to mess up so he can take away the gifts and give you coal. It's actually pharisaism, it's moralism, it's legalism, it's a graceless picture. And so on the one hand, fun and games is fine, but for how many of us has Santa Claus replaced Jesus as the way in which we see God? Do we actually believe that God is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love to the uttermost for people like you and me who sin over and over again? That's the gospel. Or do we think of him as a God who puts up with us and just hopes we don't mess up too much, otherwise he has to restrain from blessing us. That's the common Christianity of evangelical America. That's a Santa Claus gospel. And so so, so while we can acknowledge there's a history that is beautiful, we just need to confess that sometimes we just, we let that slide right in to replace our gospel hope Sometimes we actually use Santa Claus to try to train our children. The number of times I've heard over the years people say things like, well, since we introduced Elf on the Shelf or since we introduced Santa Claus to our children through, Christmas, through December, our children are really well-behaved. It's great. I'm seeing some parents smiling. We, it's a good thing when our children behave well, but the question I would ask is, why are they behaving well? Our goal as parents is heart change not behavior modification. Because behavior modification will never draw somebody to saving hope in Jesus Christ. Behavior modification will never raise up children who are successful adults because it's all about reward instead of about about something deeper, like your deep affection for Jesus Christ and your valuing of human beings around us. And so yes, it's wonderful when our children behave, but as parents, we want them to behave well because they delight in that which is good and true, and beautiful. That's why we want our children to behave, because they know that God has created them for good works and that their Father in heaven delights in rewarding good works, not because that is what you earn, but because you are his child. Brothers and sisters, I know that as adults, we may shrug off Santa Claus, but we have clung to this notion that God's gonna love us if we're good enough. He loves us despite our un. Unlovableness, our unworthiness. He loves us in light of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, and that is the end of the story. You are saved by grace, and you live by grace. The good works we do are, they flow from thankfulness, not obligation, so that he might love us more. His love for you, if you have faith, is perfect and unchangeable. Praise the Lord for his good grace. And my encouragement, my prayer for you is that as we approach Christmas, that we would be thinking more about heart change than behavior modification, that we'd be thinking more about love for our Savior than earning presents, and that we would be thinking about the Savior that came more than all of the other things that are fun and good, but they are not the reason for Christmas. But then there's one more aspect of Santa Claus we need to consider. There's a TV show on HGTV called Good Bones. Maybe you've seen it. It's actually an interesting contrast to the early HGTV shows in which they just came and put a bunch of kind of cheap DIY fixes over the house. Good Bones is a a mother and her daughter who take the home down to the studs, kind of proving the point that the foundation and the structure is good, and it just needs some, some affection and love and some rebuilding, um, but that the bones are good. Get rid of the decorative stuff. Get down to the studs. And that's what I want us to do with Santa Claus today. At the end of the day, I want us to remember something about St. Nicholas. I told you he was born in 280. That means he was alive in the year 325. For those who are a bit history nerds, 325 was the year of the Council of Nicaea. What was going on? Why did we have to have some church council? Well, following the emperor Diocletian who persecuted Christians, St. Nicholas had actually been, uh, he had actually been exiled during that persecution. As a follower of Christ, he had been sent away from his home and his people and then Diocletian died and who came into power? Well, Constantine who converted to Christianity, and suddenly Christianity had a place of security in society, and you saw a bit of a resurgence of the church in that sense, but what happened was a guy named Arius started going around teaching. He had gained a following, and he taught that Jesus was not fully God. He taught that Jesus was only partially God, that actually there was a time in which Jesus didn't exist, that he was the first of created order and things like that. And so you had a council of Nicaea that was called primarily to deal with the rise of this false teaching. And you know what? St. Nicholas was there. We don't have a lot of records. St. Nicholas is not one of the church fathers who wrote a lot, but it is believed that he was present at Nicaea and that he stood opposed to Arius. In fact, rumor is, or legend is, that he slapped the heretic for his views, that he found Arius claiming that Jesus Christ was not fully God so offensive that he struck him and then was ultimately disciplined for violating proper uh, behavior. Now, I'm not telling us to go hit people. Violence in the name of Jesus is not the answer, but that's how serious, how passionate St. Nicholas was for truth of the gospel. Why does it matter so much if Jesus was only partially God? Why would would somebody be so passionate that St. Nicholas, the generous guy, Santa Claus, would hit a heretic? Why does it matter so much that he goes that far? Well, first off, if Jesus wasn't fully God, it makes Jesus a liar, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door and the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am divine. If you know your Bible history, when Moses asked God his name before he was sent to free the people from bondage in Egypt, God said, Yahweh. I am who I am and who I always will be. The name of God is I am. When Jesus is speaking to Jewish people and says, I am the bread of life, The reason that the people in Jesus' day freaked out about that is he was making no uncertain claim. He was saying, I am God. He says it seven times in this way. And for the people in Jesus' day, they either praised him or they ripped their robes for this man was claiming to be God and he was a liar. Jesus Christ cannot be a liar. And so Arius is at war, not just with a bunch of people who like to have doctrinal battles. He's at war with what Jesus says about himself. But it's not just about Jesus' words in those moments. Uh, Westminster Catechism asks this question, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? In other words, why is it significant? Why does it matter that Jesus, our savior, is fully divine? And the answer is this. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Just a mere man could not hold off God's wrath or the power of death. Additionally, it says, Jesus gives worth and efficacy to his suffering, obedience, and intercession. And to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor and purchase A peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all our enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. The whole story of our salvation, the whole doctrine of what God is doing in bringing broken, hopeless sinners to himself, rests on the fact that Jesus is not only willing to save, but he's able to save. The ability to pay the price for our sins rests in his perfections. He had to be a like sacrifice, he had to be man, but he had to be perfect. He had to be pure. He had to be holy. And if he was not fully God, he would not be perfect, pure, and holy. That's simply the definition of holiness. Hebrews 9, that we read earlier, says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, you catch that? There was already a shadow of things to come. There was already a process for salvation being met in the sacrificial system, but it was always pointing towards the one day someday Savior, Messiah, who would perf- perfect the sacrificial system and complete it. And so, what does Jesus do? He makes a perfect tent. He enters entered once and for all into the holy places. The priests back then had to do this every year. And the priests, because they were human beings, they were full of sin themselves, had to have sacrifices offered for their own sin before they could go offer sacrifices for the sins of God's people. The author of Hebrews says, no more of that. It is done not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, thus securing What a powerful word. He secures our salvation, eternal redemption. And if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, meaning just human beings, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why was St. Nicholas generous? Why was he so pious? Because he was loved and accepted by a holy God through the person work of Jesus Christ. And he understood that his conscience had been purified from dead works so that he was free to serve the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of you. We continue as we think about the, the author of the Hebrews. He says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Brothers and sisters, we have a salvation that is secure, not because Jesus was a really nice guy. And it's not secure just because Jesus is generous. It's secure because Jesus was fully God. He was fully able to save us to the uttermost so that our sins would be separated from us as far as the east is from the west so that we would be made new. So put to death our Santa Claus version of the gospel and cling to our gospel hope in Jesus Christ. And finally, as we think about the Christmas season, I have two verses I want to read to you. One, or two, uh, from Romans chapter 1. Among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus, including you who were called to belong to Jesus because of his perfect power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. As we come to Christmas and we do wrestle with the question of how many gifts does Santa Claus get our kids, how many gifts do we get them, and we go shopping and we get wrapped up in all the fun of the season. I'm going to leave you with Jesus' comment from Matthew 6 as a challenge and an encouragement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure the good news of the gospel? I pray you do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you worked historically in the person of St. Nicholas to teach many people throughout the world what it is to have your love, your grace, your generosity written on our hearts. And we praise you that for almost 2,000 years, people have celebrated generosity. They have celebrated giving gifts And Lord, we pray at the same time that we would not stop there, but that we would go beyond that, that we would go deeper and that we would recognize that we are celebrating the coming of our Savior, the perfect one, God in the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that that realization would cause us to settle deeply into joy and hope because the gospel is good and true. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.